Construction and the Climate, Focus on Retrofitting. Welcome to Construction and the Climate. This is a podcast series from 39 Essex Chambers with me, Camilla Tahar and Ruth Keating. In this podcast series, we'll be discussing the big climate issues affecting the construction sector. In this episode of our Construction and the Climate podcast, we are focusing on retrofitting. To start off, why do you think retrofitting is so relevant to our listeners? So Camilla, our listeners will be well aware of the sector's contribution to climate change, so we don't need to cover any of that in detail today. But I think what's really interesting is if you focus on the overall statistics. So we know the buildings are responsible for 39% of global energy-related carbon emissions. And what I think tells a lot is if you break those statistics down. So 11% of that being materials and construction. So lots about embodied carbon that we've spoken about before. But the second element, and it's the huge chunk of those emissions, so 28% globally are from the operation emissions of buildings. So the energy needed to heat, cool and power all of those buildings that we use. And I think the difficulty for the sector and also the focus on retrofitting is if we think about how we balance all of those competing objectives. So on the one hand, we need enough buildings to accommodate growing populations. And we know that by the middle of the century, the global building stock is expected to double in size. So that's one of the challenges. But we counterbalance that with the approach that it can't just be that we build new buildings from scratch to accommodate for all of that growing space we need. But when we look at the building stock that we have in the UK, even for instance, 28 million homes, nearly two-fifths of them built before 1946. And I think really kind of driving home is the fact over half before 1965 building regulations even required thermal insulation. So we have a really big question there of how do we adapt new buildings? And Camilla, in terms of that adaptation, can you explain to our listeners what does retrofitting actually involve? Well, as I think you've covered, I mean, approximately 80% of commercial buildings that will exist and will be in use in 2050 have already been built. And these buildings might not be energy efficient. And so, as you've touched on, might have high operational carbon emissions. So that's the carbon emitted during the in-use phase of a building. Yet embodied carbon, which is carbon emitted during the construction of a building, means that even the greenest of new buildings can be detrimental to global climate goals. So working to reduce greenhouse gas emissions from the existing building stock or decarbonising it is a major priority. And many organisations, including the UK Green Building Council, advocate reuse over demolition and rebuilding. And many local authorities are also providing upskilling and training for this, including in London, the City of Westminster and the Greater London Authority. And to take an example from outside London, Greater Manchester has introduced retrofit GM, accelerating the renovation of Greater Manchester's buildings. So landlords and developers are increasingly looking to retrofit existing buildings and rethink their operation to minimise not only embodied carbon, but also operational carbon. And retrofitting is this process. It's the process of making changes to existing buildings. And in the context of climate goals, these changes seek to reduce the energy consumption of buildings so operational carbon emissions are reduced. Now, this usually means improvements such as, for example, the installation of renewable or low carbon energy technologies, such as solar panels or heat pumps. It often includes measures such as installing insulation or smart lighting to improve energy efficiency. Now, looking at this, retrofitting might provide a greener way to reimagine buildings, but it comes with its own considerations and challenges for developers, designers and landlords which I'd love to talk about in the next few minutes. 
Thanks, Camilla. I think what's really interesting there are the various different ways in which a project could be classified as a retrofit project. So it's clearly a very broad shirt, so to speak. But the focus really to me seems on making a lot of buildings more energy efficient. Now, it's probably helpful for our listeners to have an example in mind of just one project that we think really illustrates those kind of goals. So one of the buildings we think is interesting, some of our listeners might know it, is British Lands, One Triton Square in London. And if you look at it and you look at how that building has been constructed, it really shows some of the capabilities of retrofit. So by way of background, it was originally designed by Arab for British land in the 1990s. And then, of course, British land, they needed to increase the capacity of their building and also adapt it for modern use. So obviously, Arab had to balance those two needs. In terms of the highlights of the building, so it has this, I think, quite striking pre-existing glazed facade on the front of it. And in terms of that facade now, in terms of the retrofit project, that costs 66% less than a totally new equivalent. I think that's a major advantage when you look at one Triton Square. Looking at the overall building when you compare the cost, so the whole project costs 43% less than compared to a typical commercial building project. It saves about 40,000 tonnes of carbon. Now, that was comparing an over 20-year lease, about a 55% reduction. Now, lots of discussion I'm sure we'll have come in in future episodes about how you assess carbon, but that certainly sounds like a very impressive statistic. And finally, it was 30% faster to complete compared to the new build. And you can see why if you're able to retain some of the existing structure. And of course, we'll go on to the challenges that can be posed for a project like that. But I think what it's a really good example of is there is this real need to retrofit buildings above just demolish and rebuild. But I think it also shows in a really neat way some of the commercial benefits of a retrofit project as well as the climate benefits that you can achieve from one. I agree with that. And increasingly, though, as well, I just think this won't be a choice. And a really good example of this is in the case of the Marks and Spencer's flagship store on Oxford Street. Many of our listeners will know about this already. But on the 20th of July this year, 2023, the Secretary of State for Leveling Up Housing and Communities published his decision in relation to Marks and Spencer's application to demolish and redevelop its Oxford Street flagship store. MS believed that the three 1930s ex-office buildings at the site were no longer fit for purpose and they applied to demolish the site and replace it with a mixed-use retail development. This application was called in by the Secretary of State for Determination after objections were raised by leading figures in the heritage and built environment, who said that these proposals would unnecessarily pump 40,000 tonnes of CO2 into the atmosphere. In contrast to the slow release of carbon from existing buildings, these emissions would be released immediately because of the vast quantity of raw materials required, such as steel and concrete. So the Secretary of State made his decision after a public inquiry and refused permission. The key issues were the impact on heritage, the extent to which the proposals were consistent with the UK's transition to a zero carbon economy, and whether the public benefits of the proposed development would outweigh heritage harm and any harm in terms of climate change or harm to the zero carbon journey. Now, we're not a planning podcast, but I think it's interesting to focus on the crux of the decision, which was the interpretation of paragraph 152 of the National Planning Policy Framework. Now, relying on this, the Secretary of State agreed with the inspector that there should generally be a strong presumption in favour of repurposing and reusing buildings as reflected in paragraph 152. And in this case, where the building in question was structurally sound and in a location with the highest accessibility levels, a strong reason would be needed to justify demolition and rebuilding. 
and he concluded that the proposal was contrary to paragraph 152, that a substantial amount of carbon would go into construction and this would impede the UK's transition to a zero carbon economy. There had not been an appropriately thorough exploration of alternatives, so the proposal would fail to support the transition to a low carbon future and would fail to encourage the reuse of existing resources, including the conversion of existing buildings. Now, it's important to remember that he did agree that much must depend on the circumstances of the case, including how important it, it is that the use of the site should be optimised and also what alternatives are realistically available. So, in other words, this interpretation of paragraph 152 is really important. It really embeds an importance to look at retrofitting first in national planning policy. And this is important for our listeners because it will be influential in relation to future projects which put forward redevelopment as opposed to reuse of existing buildings without the appropriate justification. So architects, landlords, planning consultants, anyone involved in these decisions should seriously consider and should be able to show that they've considered refurbishment options as part of the process and explain if they're not going to go for the retrofitting, why they aren't and why they are proposing redevelopment instead. Come on, I think when I hear you describe the MS decision there, there are real tones of the tulip building. I don't know if you remember hearing about that proposal before. Yes, I do. And I think it would be worthwhile you giving an overview of what our listeners might find interesting about it. Exactly, Camilla. So I think it's a really good example. The tulip, some of our listeners might be aware, it was a proposal for a 305 metre tower and effectively it was going to be a tourist attraction. Now, like MS, I think there were these heritage concerns that you've highlighted. So heritage assets nearby, of course, it was going to be very near the Tower of London and that was part of the decision. But one of the really key parts of the decision was how it all dealt with carbon, which was really central. So the Tulip building itself, it would have required the demolition of an office building less than 20 years old. And I think the designers were very aware of that, to be fair. So what they had done is they'd gone to what were described as enormous lengths to make the construction and the operation environmentally friendly. And in terms of learning points for our listeners, Kimena, I think a lot of contractors and funders might have thought that was enough in terms of proving the utility of the building and how they were balancing environmental concerns. But it certainly wasn't the way it was perceived when one looked at the decision letter that was made. So I think it's worth reading from that decision letter. It was a 2021 decision and it said the extensive measures that would be taken to minimise carbon emissions during construction would not outweigh the highly unsustainable concept of using vast quantities of reinforced concrete for the foundations and a lift shaft to transport visitors to as high a level as possible to enjoy a view. Now, I do enjoy that slight little dig there they do get in the letter, but it is believed that this is the first time the government actually cited embodied carbon in a planning decision letter. And so I think, Camilla, like you said, when we look at the Tulip decision and we look at the MS decision, I think it really sets the tone going forward. Both of these proposals were made in a very different landscape and all of the proposals that are being put forward by funders and architects and employers at the moment are going to be built in a very different environment, whether that's five or ten years time, and people have to take that into account. So looking at those retrofit projects, Camilla, if it's true that decisions like MS and the Tudor Building are going to make embodied carbon even more important, what kind of challenges do you think we're going to see in practice to retrofit projects? It's a good question. I think insurance will be a big one. Some of our listeners might remember the conversations we recently had with Dominic Lyon from Gallagher, who discussed with us insurance challenges in relation to retrofit projects. And what we discussed with Dominic is there is 
a huge lack of data available on the new methods, techniques and materials that one would use for retrofit projects and a consequent challenge on how to underwrite, so how to price these methods when there is a paucity of data or experience. The other thing we discussed with Dominic was that retrofit projects are often more complex than new builds and a spate of retrofit related insurance losses, including the Glasgow School of Art and Primark in Dublin, mean that insuring these projects can often be very costly. On top of this, and another challenge in the insurance industry is that in the London market, refurbishment often falls between the cracks of construction insurance, whose industry feels comfortable with new build projects, and property insurance industries, which prefers operational buildings. Yet, insurers do not like unoccupied buildings. And it's worthwhile saying that buildings that have been retrofitted, perhaps future-proofed standards, with a great sustainability story they can sell to their tenants, might be more likely to be occupied. And if they're occupied, they're potentially a lower risk and may, in fact, be more insurable. So it'll be interesting to continue to watch this space. I think that's very true, Camilla, that there is this uh, commercial narrative that can always be made for retrofit, I think, as you say, even in insurance. And a really important part of the whole piece, and you said it there, is it's about future-proofing for standards that are going to be developing. And of course, we've mentioned the energy performance of existing buildings. That is a major part of the piece when it comes to retrofitting. Now, it's also, I would say, a problem that people need to get ahead of. And we see that all the time with evolving standards. So if we even take the example of the minimum energy efficiency standards, what that means in effect is that by 2030, all commercial buildings will need to have a minimum energy performance certificate. Now, we're used to dealing with those kind of things. And then in the case of 2030, it's going to be an EPCB. But the government has also proposed even having an interim milestone of an EPCC by 2027. Now, what does that mean in practice? What it means, of course, is that you have all of these buildings that are going to have to be compliant by 2030. And retrofitting is really going to be the major thing that's going to help make sure that those buildings are compliant. But it is an area where lots of people don't have a huge amount of experience sometimes of a retrofit project but they're going to have to get used to the idea that they'll have to take on board these kind of projects and then make sure that those minimum contractual requirements in terms of performance are then reached at the end of the project. And I think that is a real challenge and one where you can imagine disputes arising between parties as well. And of course, this all raises issues around another core area, which our construction sector clients should be alert to, which are fitness for purpose requirements. It probably goes without saying that a retrofit project will often work towards an intended outcome, for example, of improved energy efficiency in a building. And therefore, contracts for retrofitting may be very likely to include a number of fitness for purpose obligations. So impose a strict liability on a design and build contractor for a particular outcome. And this is likely to ensure that works achieve a desired level of efficiency, carbon output, and even take into account whole life carbon emissions. So it's really important for a contractor carrying out a design and build contract to really make sure that they have a proper and thorough understanding of what they're signing up to. And this is for a few reasons. Firstly, in order to draft back-to-back subcontracts, so to ensure that liability is passed down the contractual chain, but also to ensure that the specific purpose and the intended outcome is clearly defined in the contractual documents of the subcontract. It's also important for a contractor to understand what's expected of them, like really understand what's expected of them so that when drawing up design and workmanship quality procedures, they're properly drawn up, appropriate and can be applied. So, I mean, as with every contract, but I'd say particularly important here, 
it's really necessary to review the terms of the contract, the schedules, the technical documents, and understand that your client really understands the requirements for the completed works so that those performance standards can be met. But also, and you touched on this earlier, to understand what those actually mean and how they will be assessed. And you and I will be talking about assessment in a later podcast. And I think that's absolutely key when you say the parties really need to know what's required of them. And it's interesting that when we've spoken to people, sometimes people say that retrofit projects can be so well designed because from the beginning, people do have to work out this delineation of work. And a big part of that as well is design liability and that design liability matrix. So parties are really going to have to think about that from the outset in a way that for more traditional projects, I think it can be a little bit more amorphous. So Sometimes it's going to be the case that these projects are going to require creativity or ingenuity. And of course, that is going to mean that the documents might change as the project goes through its life cycle. But most importantly, I think retrofitting often involves balancing different components of the building and how they interrelate for performance. So, for instance, a beneficial change to one component can cause deterioration to another. Now, if you take a really basic example of what that can mean to conceptualise it. So if you're insulating a roof... You obviously also need ventilation. Now, if you don't have that, it could cause something like the timber frame to decay. So in short, I think what a really fundamental basic example like that shows is that you can have bespoke design solutions, but you can also have complex design solutions. And what that means is that if they're not properly thought through, people mightn't really understand where does design liability really lie between the parties. Now, Camilla will be well aware of this, but employers naturally, they're going to want a single point of design responsibility. Of course, they're going to. But contractors might think that they're taking on a risk profile that's quite different if there are multiple third parties involved that have all contributed to a solution. So I think what it really shows that retrofitting is a little bit more thought needs to be given at the start of the project. But it also shows that some of the old problems that we're well aware of dealing in these kind of disputes are just going to rear their heads in a bit of a different way but in a way that we are familiar with and just need to grapple with at the start of the life cycle of the project. Absolutely right, Ruth. And thank you very much for such an interesting discussion. And thank you for our listeners for listening. At 39 Essex Chambers, we cover a vast array of practice areas and sectors. You can find out more about our expertise and our barristers at 39essex.com, where you can also see our extensive catalogue of articles, podcasts and webinars. 